To stay on top in business, stay on top of your technology with the new Business Desk podcast, the business of tech. Listen on iHeartRadio or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Pieces of Silver, inside the Silver Lake deal. We put the most controversial business deal in New Zealand rugby history under the microscope. Is it a masterstroke or a terrible mistake? Episode 2, Part 1, A Spanner in the Spokes. David Kirk is at work on his rural Hawke's Bay property. The former All Blacks captain is dividing his time between his New Zealand and Sydney homes. Much of his working day is devoted to running his successful investment company, Bolidar, while also juggling his high-profile governance roles, which include chairing the boards of both Katmandu and Forsyth Bar and also the New Zealand Rugby Players Association. Outside his picturesque and expansive property, wife Bridget tends to their horses. It's 2019 and a sunny day as Kirk is catching up on emails. The message was from an acquaintance the former All Blacks halfback knew in the corporate world, specifically the investment banking world. Had David seen a term sheet doing the rounds on behalf of New Zealand Rugby seeking an investment bank to run a private equity process? The acquaintance knew of Kirk's fame in the rugby world, captain of the first World Cup winners, the all-conquering 1987 All Blacks, with household names such as Sir John Kerwin, Michael Jones and Sean Fitzpatrick. And that Kirk was also the long-standing chairman of the New Zealand Rugby Players Association. He assumed Kirk had been party to NZR's decision-making to dip the toes into the private equity pool and politely asked him why. This person understood NZR's finances. They were challenged, yes, but they were hardly dire. This seemed an extreme move, with big ramifications. Why was NZR doing this, they asked Kirk, because they couldn't understand the logic. David Kirk sat at his screen, dumbfounded. Nor did he, and this was the first time he'd heard about this. Part 2. I'm Trevor McEwen, and this is Pieces of Silver, Inside the Silver Lake Deal. And this is episode 2 of 6, A Spanner in the Spokes. I've worked at the coalface of professional sport for 45 years plus, on both the media and executive administration sides. I've been a sports journalist covering the All Blacks. I was intimately involved in Rupert Murdoch's Super League revolution. I was CEO of the Warriors for two years, and I ran the commercial department at New Zealand Rugby in the early 2000s. I know a bit about what happens when big money and sport collide. Business desk's Paul Macbeth and I have been investigating New Zealand Rugby's Silver Lake deal and have interviewed the key characters in the saga for this podcast on the $200 million deal. In our first episode, we revealed two key flashpoints that ignited a simmering row between NZR and the Rugby Players Association, or RPA as you will often hear us refer to it, and which was to result in protracted and painful renegotiations with Silver Lake, splitting New Zealand's much-loved national game in two. Here's Paul recapping those two important factors. Thanks, Trevor. The first of these was NZR asking the McKinsey consulting firm to research how players were paid in other sports. 
That's because NZR's board identified players' payments being pegged to revenue as a business model challenge, collecting 36.5 cents in every dollar from all player-generated activity. The National Union agreed to this formula back in 2006 during collective bargaining negotiations. But now the agreement appeared to rankle with the board and provincial unions, and NZR seemed to be looking at ways to change it, unbeknownst to the players. The second flashpoint is the one you described at the beginning of this episode, Trevor. David Kirk discovers, almost by accident, that New Zealand rugby is courting private equity, with its favoured target being Silver Lake, a giant American fund manager with more than 95 billion American dollars under management. Yes, Paul, and two things immediately strike him. The first is that this move, with what appears to be no formal consultation with the RPA at this point, completely disregards the partnership and trust between the organisations. And number two, to David Kirk anyhow, it makes no sense. He quickly rang Rob Nicholl, the Auckland-based chief executive of the RPA. Because I saw documents and stuff that were provided to me by another private equity company who'd been provided with the NZR information pack. And I, they didn't give me the documents, but they, I went through them uh, and read them. And I said to Rob, do you know anything about this? And he said, look, there's been stuff talked about this, but there's been no discussions and we, there's been no in, engagement with us. So no, I don't really. And then, so then I could fill him in on what I understood. Kirk told Nickel what he had learned, but another element of what he had discovered deeply troubled the RPA chairman. He considered NZR and the RPA were partners in working together on the future of rugby in New Zealand. In fact, they had a legally binding agreement to that effect, called a collective bargaining agreement, something required under New Zealand law between an employer and its employees. Kirk would later learn discussions about private equity had begun as early as 2018, and that NZR's chairman, Brent Impey, and another board member who would become CEO at the beginning of 2020, Mark Robinson, had met with senior Silver Lake representatives and other private equity companies in London in 2019. Kirk was unimpressed. Here he is on what he sees as NZR's obligations. That is both a legal obligation to a partnership to work together in the best interests of New Zealand rugby. And that's what we've always done. And we've, we've always been very open and straightforward with New Zealand rugby. So to know that there was a massive process dealing with image rights and dealing with player welfare in a general sense, and this was something that was a complete surprise to us, as well as a proposal to cut player share of player-generated revenue from 36% to 31%. You heard David Kirk mention image rights just before. We need to spend a little bit of time on this issue because it's critical to understanding why New Zealand rugby was not able to sign off on an agreement with Silver Lake, or anybody else for that matter, without the blessing of the Rugby Players Association. And once you understand it, maybe you're a bit like me. You can't understand for the life of you why NZR went down the track of keeping the RPA in the dark for so long. Rob Nicholl explained to me why image rights are so crucial to understanding this saga. Professional sport in particular is about property rights. And it's about how those property rights come together, who owns what. Because if you don't own something, you probably don't have a right to be at the table. Yeah, and by so property rights, you mean image rights. The player's image is a piece of property. And so we struck the first collective agreement in 2001. So that actually was the key. 
Then the second thing that we got from a player's perspective is we got the fact that the players own their own property or their own IP rights, and it was entrenched in that collective agreement. It sounds bizarre, but until you actually write it down in a formalized agreement, there's always arguments over who owns what. And then what we did is we took that player property and we recognised that New Zealand Rugby owned their names and logos and uniforms. So they owned the Super Rugby competition name, the All Blacks brand, etc., and the jersey as such. But they couldn't do anything without the player's property. So what we did is we took the player's property, their property, combined it, called it player licence property, and gave them permission to sell that to broadcasters and to sponsors to bring money into the game at a professional level, which flowed through the game. That's the architecture of the relationship. Yes, we're aligned strategically. Yes, we commit to working together in the best interests of not just professional rugby, but the whole game in New Zealand. Mm. But we're also commercially brought together through that agreement. This is pretty extraordinary, Paul. What it basically means is that NZR's commercial assets mean diddly squat if they don't have permission to also use the players' images. That's right, Trevor. While NZR owns the name All Blacks and the uniform and logos, they're worth much less without the star power of the players. It's typically a two-way street, with the black jersey adding to the pulling power of the players. When you put the two together, those assets can create hundreds of millions of dollars. So David Kirk was flummoxed that New Zealand Rugby's board was charging on with such a game-changing play without even seeking the view of the players. He soon discovered that Silver Lake didn't realise the deal needed the players' blessing too. I mean, Silver Lake did not understand right at the beginning, and this is an embarrassment to them, that they needed the players to agree to the deal. So there was no legal right for New Zealand rugby to sell player image rights and, and the rights to player images. So they missed that in their due diligence. And when we pointed it all out, when the deal blew up at the beginning, well, we should have figured that out. Frankly, I'm astonished by this, Paul. I think it's a lesson that sometimes the guys you think are the smartest in the room aren't always the smartest in the room. They've been talking for almost two years, and a complex deal to buy up to 15% of NZR's commercial assets is all but thrashed out. And Silver Lake don't even realise New Zealand rugby can't get the deal across the line without the players' consent. Simple due diligence around reading the collective bargaining agreement would have revealed that. Yeah, it seems a bit hard to believe that it wasn't picked up, even in a deal this small for a player as large as Silverlake. It's hard to second-guess what they were thinking after the fact and from the outside, but it does look like they underestimated its importance or how the players would leverage it. I asked David Kirk why he thought New Zealand rugby was taking this strange approach. I think there were two reasons why they didn't involve the players. One is they didn't think the players had a right to be at the table. They were the bosses and they would do what they wanted to do and the players should come along with it. Uh, and secondly, you know, they'd have a difficult problem to resolve, i.e. the 36 versus the 31% of player-generated revenue, that would hold things up. And it would be better just to get the deal in place and then find a way to convince the players to do it. Shared Lunch is your chance to see behind the share price of the companies you invest in. I'm not sure that 2024 will be a year that people remember fondly. Hear from CEOs and experts with a fresh take on what's happening in the markets here and abroad. There are a number of reasons that you might hold Bitcoin. It's often described as digital gold. Shared Lunch from Sharesies with Business Desk. You know, the World Bank is uh, reported as saying that we're probably three years into five very difficult years. Where are the, where are the opportunities for people here? When it comes to investing, we'll all Always bring something to the table. Listen on iHeartRadio or wherever you get your podcasts. Part 3. David Kirk has just touched on the other flashpoint early in this saga. 
the seemingly covert move to curb the income of the All Blacks players and New Zealand's other professional players. He doesn't buy Brent Impey's narrative that New Zealand rugby's finances are in dire straits and this private equity deal must be done. And he doesn't appreciate what he describes as the, quote, sneaky behaviour of the union around tampering with the formula that determined the players' share of the commercial pie they generated. The two numbers you need to focus on to understand that New Zealand rugby was actually in pretty good financial heart, firstly, the average annual revenue growth over the extended period of professional rugby, and that was 8%. And most businesses, so growing their revenue at compound 8%, that's great performance. And as you say, over about a 10 or 12-year period, you're going to double your revenue in that period. But the, And the other important number is the reserves at the time. So because they'd grown their revenue well and they'd by and large managed their costs appropriately, including the 36% share of player payments, they had $100 million in the bank, cash in the bank. New Zealand rugby was actually in pretty good shape. But there was no burning platform because they were claiming there was a burning platform. Everything was broken and the players were the cause, at least one cause of the, of the fact that everything was broken. And so we had to point, I had to point out publicly that if you're a company grows at eight, its revenue at 8% a year and it's still crying and it's got 100 million in reserves and it's still crying poor, A, that's not true, uh, and B, if they think that's going to be the case in the future, well, that's because of mismanagement, nothing else. Well, these, these sorts of angles that I had to take in order to just make people realise that it wasn't true that the players were being unconstructive and that New Zealand rugby was otherwise doing things really well except for the fact that the players were taking too much money. So as a business growing its revenue at 8% a year and it's got $100 million of cash reserves in the bank, that is not a burning platform. That is not a business falling down that needs some major structural financial review. And to say otherwise is just to fly in the face of facts. That view, of course, is completely contrary to Brent Impey and the NZR board's financial narrative. There are facts that support Kirk's contention. Between 2015 and 2022, NZR increased its revenue from $134 million to more than $270 million, an increase of almost 103%. It largely came off the back of a great deal with Sky TV, who, in the face of challenges from the national telco's upstart Spark Sport, renewed their deal at a figure that the media consistently reports as $100 million a year and also increases in jersey sponsorship. During that same time period, no Northern Hemisphere national union, including England's RFU, who owned a cash cow in the Twickenham Stadium in London, had even gone remotely close to achieving NZR's stellar financial results. But that's one of the conflicting elements of the Silver Lake saga. There are wildly contrasting narratives held by NZR and the RPA, and this question of financial stability is one of them. As Brent Impey told us, the National Union is typically profitable in just one year every decade. That means it's had to manage its books very closely and is restricted in its ability to generate enough cash to not only keep healthy buffers in case of that rainy day, like when a pandemic shuts the world down, but also to bail out any of the provincial unions when things come a cropper, which does happen from time to time. And you can't really look at the National Union's accounts in isolation. It's essentially the backstop for the provincial unions not only in providing funding lines when it's needed, but also supporting national initiatives to foster the wider game. NZR has long recognised the need to extract more value from the global brand to shore up its own finances, while also pouring more money into the grassroots and union levels to maintain the base. And that's a very difficult tension to manage when it's constrained by so many mouths to feed. 
There's only so many times they can book gains on currency valuations going in their favour, and I doubt anyone would want to see NZR turn itself into a trading house. But what about the so-called business model challenge? The cost structure issue where player-generated revenue was tagged to a percentage model. Kirk told me the RPA would have been happy to debate the issue with NZR's board if they simply told them their concerns. I asked him when he first found out about NZR's player payment anxieties. When did you first become aware of the plan to curb the revenue? I personally was not aware of it until it it popped up in these discussions around the Silver Lake investment. I'm sure Rob Nicklewood would have been closer to that and closer to New Zealand rugby's concerns about the share of player-generated revenue that was going to the players. But I'll make a couple of points about that. Firstly, you can't consider a percentage number as the be-all and end-all of what's the appropriate amount of money to go to players because you've got to put it in the context of the size of the country and the uh, competition for players and the overall strategy of the organisation. So if New Zealand rugby wants to maintain world-class domestic competitions, including Super Rugby and the National Provincial Championship, it needs to pay players well enough such that they will stay in New Zealand and not go to France, Italy, the UK and, and Japan. And you know they're much bigger economies with much bigger funding of the games and in many cases private individuals own teams or companies own teams as happens in Japan and they're, and they're well funded. So you know how much you pay the players is partly a question of equity of what's fair for the players, but it's also partly a question of what's your strategy and what are you trying to achieve and how much do you need to pay players in order to achieve it. And I think if New Zealand rugby had come to the players and said, look, you know, this is what we're thinking and these are our concerns and these are things we wanted to discuss with you, we would have been totally open-minded to be sneaky, if you like, to go off and to put into their agreements, as they did in the end, when they took their agreement to the provinces, they put in a lower share to get it signed off at that the very first 12.5% sale, to get it signed off by the provinces, showing, you know, more rosy financial forecasts than were justified because they had put in 31%, not 36% of player-generated revenue. To me, that was A, a dreadful process and, and certainly not consistent with the partnership and the sort of openness you expect from an employer. This was another wow moment for me, Paul. Our next episode is going to go into greater detail of exactly what Silver Lake and New Zealand Rugby had agreed to in what is known as the original transaction before the RPA became more involved. But once the RPA gained the detail of that original transaction, they discovered the National Union presented a set of future financials to the provincial unions, which in effect had reduced the player-generated revenue percentage down from 36.5% to 31%. It might have made for a much more palatable financial sheet to NZR's technical owners, the 26 national provincial unions who were required to sign off on the deal. But there'd been no consultation with the RPA, and the players' union was not happy about that. But it wasn't the only disconcerting moment for David Kirk, Rob Nicholl, and the RPA board, which included directors like twice World Cup winning all-black captain Richie McCaw and teammate Conrad Smith. David Kirk describes what he called a shocking moment when he discovered a further crucial element of the deal that Silver Lake and New Zealand Rugby had agreed to and were looking to get ratified at the 2021 AGM that was just months away. After more discussion and trying to get to the bottom of what was going on, David Kirk and Rob Nicholl determined an urgent, 
clear the air meeting was needed with the National Union. Rob Nickel arranged the video call. Kirk and Nickel were on it as key RPA personnel. Representing New Zealand Rugby was Chief Executive Mark Robinson, Melbourne-based board member Bart Campbell, and the National Union Senior Commercial Executive, Richard Thomas. Yeah, Brent wasn't on that call? No, he wasn't on. No engagement with Brent or anyone else other than those three people until we wrote our letter on the 29th of January. They did present to us the, where they were going and what the plan was, and I guess shockingly at the time, and this wasn't actually understood by a lot of people for a long time, shockingly that they were selling revenue. Up to 8% of revenue, yeah. No, 15%, up to 8, 15% of revenue. On first transaction. Yeah, was what was put in front of us. Paul, Kirk used the word shockingly in there. Explain to our listeners what he means by NZR was selling revenue. Selling revenue would be if Silver Lake had the same preferential treatment as the Players Association and the provincial unions, getting a share of every dollar coming in the door. But the deal with Silver Lake isn't quite that. It's a profit share, so they don't get their cut until the players and the provincial unions get their percentage and after Comco's costs have all been covered. That's where the rubber will hit the road, because NZR is still working its way through cost-sharing arrangements as to what sits with the union and what sits with the commercial entity. Even then, it won't actually happen until Silver Lake's convertible notes switch to equity. As it stands, those notes are paying 4% on the $200 million it's tipped in, which works out at about $8 million a year. Nothing to turn your nose up at, but well short of the type of return a private equity firm expects. The revenue share description always looked like part of the campaign against the deal and ultimately seemed to become the dominant narrative when things all started coming to a head. Kirk went on to explain to me that at that stage, NZR was looking to sell as much as 15% of NZR's commercial assets to Silver Lake. Eventually, the board came back with a recommendation of 12.5%, but still, Kirk was mortified. We were horrified by that sale, and it didn't take much looking at numbers to realise that was going to put the operating business of New Zealand rugby under a lot of pressure. You take away 12.5% of revenue from any company, and you don't touch the cost base, and you've got an unprofitable business. So New Zealand rugby would be bleeding, you know, would be losing money, cash, over an extended period of time while the revenue caught up to the 12.5% that had been lost. And if you didn't catch up, that was the biggest risk of the whole deal. If it didn't work or it took much longer than you expected, you'd run down the reserves, you'd, you'd sold the money, you'd sold the revenue to gain, uh, and you'd be in, in, in no better position. So that's a major risk that, that selling revenue bakes into a business. David Kirk and Rob Nickel regrouped after their call with Robinson, Thomas and Campbell. They were reeling. It was just a couple of weeks before Christmas. Silver Lake had won a tender to purchase a significant share of NZR's commercial assets, including the All Blacks, beating off four other contenders, including European-based CVC, who had been investing in Northern Hemisphere rugby assets and was interested in World Rugby's mooted Nations Championship. New Zealand rugby was significantly advanced in preparing its case for the 2021 AGM in April, where it was convinced the provincial unions and the New Zealand Maori board would back the agreement. The deal was simply too good for them not to. Kirk and Nickel felt they had a lot of work to do in a very short time if, from their perspective, they were going to get some sense into this deal. The first big piece of that work was assembling their case. And, more importantly, they felt they needed to assert their legal rights. 
no deal was going to be signed off with anybody without their permission. Over the first month of the new year in 2021, Kirk, Nickel and others put in the hard graft required, assembling a 4,000-word letter that was emailed to New Zealand Rugby and the provincial unions on January 29, 2021. The letter's bottom line? The Rugby Players Association would not support the deal in its current guise. NZR could huff and puff all it liked. The players' union weren't on board, and therefore no deal could be done with Silver Lake. If Brent Impey, Mark Robinson and the New Zealand Rugby Board were concerned at that stage, though, they were doing a grand job of hiding it. Media reports were emerging in both Europe and New Zealand that a deal with Silver Lake was imminent. Here's a stuff story that appeared on January 25, 2021, just four days before the RPA's letter was sent. Well-sourced reports suggest New Zealand Rugby is nearing a deal to sell 15% of the All Blacks' commercial rights arm to Silver Lake, a US investment giant, after a fiercely fought auction process. The deal talks, launched last year, have triggered interest from both sides of the Atlantic, with some of Wall Street and the City of London's biggest buyout firms keen to get in on the action. According to the UK's Sky News, Silver Lake is in advanced discussions with New Zealand's main rugby body. The AB's rights have been valued at £1.5 billion, $2.8 billion New Zealand dollars, underlining the growing interest in sports teams and competitions following a frenzy of activity across Europe. But before the RPA sends its letter of January 29, 2020, which states it won't back the Silver Lake deal in its current guise, it plays a legal trump card the month before. In the next episode of Pieces of Silver, Inside the Silver Lake Deal, we reveal that legal play and talk to the journalist who broke the story of the private equity bid. And then I was talking to a source in television, as it happens, or at the very least connected to that kind of TV world, and he had overheard two words, Silver Lake. I almost immediately became aware that the players weren't fully on board. And was New Zealand rugby developing a god complex? There was no doubt that New Zealand rugby wanted to flex their muscles. And Silver Lake complete their biggest sporting deal yet by buying into Manchester City. They are expecting the All Blacks to follow. How are they going to react to this unexpected roadblock? 